Okay, so there again, there on your notes, we're on letter F. It says perseverance, the perseverance of the saints. And this doctrine says that those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives, and that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. So I like the understanding of perseverance of the saints a lot better than once saved, always saved, because that can sound a, a whole lot like it doesn't matter what you do. You just make a profession of faith and then nothing else matters after that and you're golden, you got the golden ticket. And it's like, no, that, that's just not a very helpful way to, to explain things. So what we mean by the perseverance of the saints is that everyone who has truly been born again, who God started to work in, God will complete that. God will keep them by his power. Um, so for example, Jude, almost the last book of the Bible, uh, but Jude, this little book, um, right before Revelation there, in verse 24. Because Jude, Jude has been talking about this, you know, the importance of persevering or remaining faithful. But then in verse 24, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So Jude is tying all this back to it's God who is able to keep us uh, from stumbling. So I, I totally recognize that, you know, just depending on your background or history, um, there's definitely uh, two sides to, you know, other people. Some Christians believe that it is possible to lose your salvation. Um, and where, where on the other hand, it's like I think there's good biblical reason to say um, that's not the case. But if you hold that other position, I can respect that. Um, certainly grew up in a tradition that taught that as well. So let's focus in here on um, trying to you know, argue both sides of it, but just pointing out why I think it's, what, why I would say the Bible would point toward um, or help us to understand that you know, God keeps all of those that he starts a work in. So some passages that would helpfully explain that. Um, and just as a side note to that, I, th I think it is kind of interesting, especially uh, among the Baptists. Um, many, or many of them would hold to this doctrine right here, you know, perseverance of the saints. They'd say, yeah, we can't lose our salvation. But then on the other hand, they would they really resist against um, this idea that God chooses people. And it's kind of strange because there's a whole lot more passages that would seem to uh, suggest that one can lose their salvation than there are that would say God chooses people. You know, it's, it's a lot more passages that, would, that you could argue against losing your salvation, but yet they're like, no, 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 you can't lose your salvation. But then we aren't chosen by God. You know, we choose God. <laughs> I just find that a little bit interesting, but that's kind of a side tangent. <laughs> But anyways, back to, back to here. So uh, Christians um, can't lose their salvation. And we want to talk about, well, then what do those passages mean that seem to suggest that they can? But in John uh, 6.39, this is the will of him who sent me, that, all, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So the will of the Father who sends the me or Christ is that all 
of the people that the Father has given the Son, He loses none of them. But it, but He raises it, or He's referring back to the people there. He, he raises them up. He raises all of them up on the last day. So that would be one text that would show that, um, that God's protection, how He sustains His, his people. Uh, Romans 8, 38 to 39. So would somebody like to read that for us? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's interesting, though, you know, the kind of the lengths that some people go to, to try to change that. They'll say, well, yeah, that's true. Nothing else can, but, but we can jump out of God's hand. Well, it's like, well, I don't know. I don't see that in the passage. <laughs> if that were the case, you know, wouldn't it be, would it be something there then that, that would be able to do that? So um, you have to be careful of not all of a sudden putting things in there that aren't, aren't actually in there. But that's the encouragement that Paul's writing them to them with is that even our sin is not going to be able to separate us from the love of God. Even Satan and all his powers can't do that. You know, that's the kind of sustaining, protecting power that God has. Because if it were up to us, if we could jump out of the Father's hands, we would. We probably would have a long time ago. So we also, you know, Scripture would also say that God will protect and preserve all Christians. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to 24. Would somebody like to read that, please? I can read it. Thank you. Now may the God of his peace himself sanctify you entirely. And you and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. Good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So there, another, another great text talking about how God preserves his people. He is going to present them uh, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if God couldn't do that, that would say something about God, right? If he, if he could only get part of his people there or some of his people there, that wouldn't reflect on him. But he's going to get all his people there. All the ones he started with, he's going to present them all blameless. We've already read the Jude passage right there. So what's that say then about those who fall away? You know, because you've got to answer that, right? And I understand there's the argument on the other side is you can lose your salvation. That's, again, not the only way you can understand this. Um, we can also say that, uh, or I think the better way would be to say they really weren't Christians to begin with. So 1 John 2.19, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. So there, you know, John is pointing that same thing out. Like, what, what do we make of these people who apostatize, who leave the faith, who turn away? Well, it's a way that God uses to demonstrate who really belonged to him in the first place. So, so they left because they never really truly belonged to him in the first place. So the relevance of this is that we don't lose the faith that brought us to salvation. Um, a sa you know, saving faith will lead us to live a life of assurance, knowing that we're going to persevere to the end. 
And our assurance is not in ourselves. Like we're not trusting that we have what it takes to make it to the end, because I sure don't. But our assurance is in God who has delivered us from the darkness and, um, and he will preserve us and uh, bring us safely into his kingdom. But that does raise a great, another great question then. So if God promises to preserve us, then why does he include all of those warning passages that we see, say, say like in the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 6 or chapter 10, uh, 26 right here? What, what do you think? We can even take a look at Hebrews 6 if you want, um, verses. One through eight. Would somebody be able to read that, please? Thank you. Six yep. through eight. Yes, please. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For if it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tested the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him, uh, and ho and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain, that often fa falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those who... Sorry, to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Yeah, thank you. So what do you think? Why would why does God include the warning passages in there if he preserves his people? you're making over and over because then you're constantly just rejecting what Jesus Christ did. Mm -hmm. That's kind of at mm -hmm. least what I think maybe. Yeah, good. That's true. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so there's, I mean, you know, have a place like Hebrews 6 and 
some, you know, some will say, well, this is talking about people who never were saved in the first place. Uh, some, some take that position. Like that's what it's talking about. They just had the form uh, of this, the, the appearance of godliness, but they never truly did it in the first place. So, but I think it's actually, t- and then, then you have others who, who are saying, no, this is talking about believers and they can lose their salvation because see, it's, he's talking about, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. Um, you know, it's, they've tasted the, the, the gift they've shared in the Holy Spirit. How could that not be talking about believers, right? And they can lose their salvation. But uh, I think a third position is possible too. And that's that we're talking about believers, but these passages here are a warning, like they're like guard posts at the edges of cliffs. Or, you know, if you go to the mountains, right, they've got all kinds of signs that say like, be careful, don't go past this point. And if you do, you're in danger of going over the edge. So these warning passages are the means by which God helps his people persevere. So it's what he uses so that we will persevere. Um, So it's not as if the true believer is doing this and then losing their salvation, but it's a warning to the true believer. Like, if you do this, if you keep going in your sin and your rejection of Christ, then you have no assurance that you were ever saved in the first place. You have no assurance of eternal life. So don't, don't do it. Don't get so close to the edge. So that's, that's how I think uh, these warning passages function. There's a great book, if you're looking for like a short book, on this topic of perseverance and how it relates to the warning passages. It's by Thomas Schreiner, and it's called Run to Win, I think is the name of it. But it's, it's about how God uses the warning passages to just help us as believers to warn us uh, not to go over um, the edge, so to speak. Any uh, questions or thoughts about that doctrine of the perseverance of saints? So, I mean, again, it would tie back to everything we've previously said. Like, this doesn't give anybody this license to sin. I mean, Romans 6 answers that. What then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. So it's not true that if, we, if we're um, teaching the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that we're giving people a license to do whatever they want. That's, that's a, false, uh, you know, a false claim right there. But uh, any questions about that, that topic of perseverance? I, I think, um, I don't know if this is a struggle, but like the term lose mm-hmm. is um, typically used for unintentional. Like I don't intentionally lose my keys in the morning. I don't intentionally lose a ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think to that extent, you know, when we say you can't lose your salvation, it's like we say you can't lose your salvation, but then we talk about um, not, and obviously not it being taken away against our will or, or accidentally. Um, but then like, I think a passage like this is maybe more about um, sanctification um, you know, I think of the parable of the sower, and the sower is spreading the seed everywhere, and it, it roots and it grows, uh, but then obviously it has very different outcomes depending upon the soil. So mm-hmm. uh, it's just, I guess, just a, a thought. It's kind of like, yeah, people say you can't lose your salvation. Others say, oh, yeah, you can lose it. And it's like, well, I don't think you can lose it unintentionally. Mm-hmm. Um, Instead of like losing your salvation, my brain is starting to think of, can you reject your salvation? 
if you yourself can you be actively rejecting it without knowing it? Um, so that's it's a good question. So you have some who would say yes, and then you would have others who would say, if you do that, what you thought you had in the beginning was never really genuine. Like it's it's not that you actually did that. It's just maybe you had, an, you know, maybe maybe what you thought was that you did place your faith and trust in Christ alone, but that never truly happened because at some point you you apostatized, you turned away from that. So. Yeah, I think um, you know the position I take is that if somebody would do that, what they had in the beginning was not genuine. But I can respect the other side that says, no, you actually, um, you actually lost it. So again, Christians have uh, been on different sides of the fence for a long time on this, um, and so it's like I don't pretend like anybody's going <laughs> to figure it, figure it out right at this moment. I think we we can look at the biblical evidence and weigh it and come to a good conclusion in our mind. So that's that's really my hope is that just for you to hear both sides fairly and then you know for you to be able to go to the text and come away with your own conclusions to it. Mm -hmm. I I appreciate you allowing us to wrestle with that. Um, it's really interesting to have this talk right after being bombarded with. Uh, theology of sanctification for the last two weeks to think of losing your salvation it makes you think well god failed in sanctifying us mm -hmm. which seems ludicrous when you put it that way yep um, but then you also have texts like galatians where paul's like what are you guys doing <laughs> and so yeah he, he yeah. saw it too mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. i was just wondering about yeah, like you talk about if you're uh, truly saved, then you persevere to the end. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's kind of an odd to me concept because it's kind of like saying if you truly pick the game, like, you know, today all the commentators will pick who's going to win the football game. Mm -hmm. If you truly pick the game correct before the game starts, then it'll truly be how it ends. It's almost a nonsensical, um, you know, if, if you're truly saved, then you will be saved. I'm not sure what that even means it's just follows by I think, logic that um, I think maybe the, the bigger question is you know we we believe we're saved um, we have the assurance we know we can trust in the fact that it's not because of us that we're saved mm -hmm. uh, it's only through the um, sacrifice of Christ mm -hmm. and as we understand that more um, deeply uh, I think that gives us even a greater assurance of our salvation mm -hmm. um, but I think for a lot of people, you know, they they go through the motions, they get baptized, they, um, you know, confess their faith, but then they're trying to figure out, well, am I truly saved? Is mm -hmm. this going to last till the end? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's almost kind of semantics when we talk about, well, if you're truly saved, you can't fall away. I think the big question is, what does, you know, how do you know you're truly saved? Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good point, because because yeah, I mean, for, from our standpoint of it, of is like if if we're not persevering, if we're not remaining obedient to God's word, then we don't have that assurance. So it's it'd be dangerous to go back and and build it off the argument. Well, I can never I can never lose it. So even though I'm walking contrary to the Lord and disobeying Him, I, I should be okay, right? Because you just can't lose it. It's like that's actually both sides would agree. Like no, <laughs> that's that's not not going to work either. So from our standpoint, yeah, it's we all have that practical motivation to to persevere. 
so we don't have we, we can't have any assurance if we're not doing that. But I think on the other side of it is what I would what I see would be a, a problem would be, and I've run into this quite a bit, is some just never feel like they've done enough. And they're they even get to their deathbed and they're like, Oh, I, I just hope I've done enough for Jesus. Like I just you know, and they're they are they are constantly so afraid of losing it and not not being good enough, which they can't be anyway, right? So there has to be a balance and somewhere in there of not being so afraid of like each and every day when you wake up, like I just don't know if I've done enough. I think I'm going to lose it today versus the other ditch would be um, I can just do whatever I want and it doesn't really matter because obviously I was, you know, I was saved back then. So everything else is, is good. It's got to be somewhere sort of in the middle there. Yeah. Good. I like that. I like that discussion. Great thoughts there. And that can be something, if you want, we can uh, pick back, you know, talk about that more next week if there's any other questions or um, teachings you want related to that. But then our final um, topic then will be glorification. So... So glorification is that final step in the um, the application of redemption. So we had started, I think I give you that timeline. Timeline. It's not necessarily chronological, but just how we you know ordered out. We, we started here with um, with election, God choosing us, and then we go to glorification. So this happens uh, when Christ returns. He raises the body of all who are deceased, um, reuniting them with their souls, changes the bodies of all who remain alive, giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. So that's a wonderful thing that we have to look forward to. So right now, when a person dies, their spirit and their body are separated and the spirit goes to either be with in a place of punishment or with the Lord, but the body is in the grave. But that's not how the end is going to be. We're not just going to be like spirits floating around on the clouds somewhere. We're going to be, we are, God created us as embodied souls, so soul and body. But we'll be given a new glorified body, a resurrected body. And so when at the second coming, that's what we'll have is, is this resurrected body. And there's some scripture here that teach this. Uh, can I get somebody to read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 51 and 52, and then someone else, um, Philippians 3.20, and then 1 John 3.2, please. Thank you. So yeah, they're, they're right there. You can see Paul is talking about that in the twinkling of an eye. It's not even a split second. It's like the twinkle of an eye, which is even quicker than that. But the dead will be raised and we will be changed. So he's looking forward to that glorified body. That, and not only the body, we're going to talk about 
there's more that will be changed other than just our physical bodies. Okay, yeah, thank you. Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he is even to subject all things to himself. Okay, thank you. So there, I mean, you see the body, but that includes more than the physical aspect. It's in conformity with, with the body of his glory. So, I mean, we're talking about everything we've been awaiting for. You know, when your emotions will be perfect, when your attitudes will be perfect, when you won't have any inclination to disobey God again or do what's wrong, when there won't even be a single thought of saying something bad or thinking about something bad about another person. That, that'll all be gone. You'll, you'll have the, the, all the remnants of sin will be removed. So that, that is uh, just something that we're waiting for with eager expectation right there. Okay, and then First uh, John 3, 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we what we will be has not yet been made known. But what but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, and we shall see Him as He is. Thank you. So again, another passage that talks about we will be like Him. So in that, it doesn't mean obviously that we become Jesus, that we become divine, but it does mean that the image of God in us which was distorted in Genesis 3 at the fall, will finally be made new again. So God's original design for us, where we perfectly you know, bear out, where we perfectly live as image bearers, perfectly reflect Christ in our worship, in our work, in everything, that'll be there. That's what's going to happen. That's what, we're, that's what we're waiting for. But it's not as if you know, we become gods and goddesses ourselves. So the relevance, the final step in our salvation, we won't be infirmed by the dread curse of sin. All of those positional realities of justification, adoption, sanctification, and so on will be a reality. So in other words, you know, think back of the things we've talked about in class. Justification, we've talked about adoption, sanctification. Um, there's still an aspect of those that's not yet it's, it's not yet. It's, it's now, but it's still an aspect that we're waiting for. Like for our adoption, right? You're, you are adopted, but there's a not yet part of it. It's like you're waiting for the, the final phase of that. There's a, a part of your sanctification. You have it now, but there's still a part that's coming, right? So all of these doctrines, um, they'll finally become fully there, a full reality. So what that means practically is... You'll have a body and heart which will worship God in perfect holiness. For those of you who are frustrated with your spiritual life, who lose focus when you pray, whose thoughts drift during singing, <laughs> any, anyone familiar with that? <laughs> who carry the guilt of sin? When you are glorified, you will be able for the first time in your life to offer pure worship truly acceptable to our King. So a lot to look forward there, isn't it? No more distracted prayer life or, um, again, just temptations popping up in your mind or uh, where you're making a decision because you weren't aware of or maybe ignored some kind of indwelling sin that was still affecting you. None, none of that will be present. 
So we've covered, we haven't covered, obviously you can spend your lifetime and we hope that you will spend all of your lifetime looking more over the doctrines that we talked about in this class that you'll realize that we, we can never exhaust those. I mean, we can take one passage, one single verse and spend our lifetime. You know, it's, that's the amazing thing about the Bible. It's simple enough that you can read it and understand it, but then it's deep enough where you can spend your whole life just studying even one, one verse. So we've just covered the nuances of this, but the big question remains, why? Why would a glorious being such as our God send his precious son to execute a plan formed in eternity past? Well, this action certainly reveals his kindness, his goodness, his love, and his mercy to unworthy creatures such as ourselves. So our hope is that you'll not only appreciate the gift of salvation, but give greater glory and admiration to the giver of this gift. And that song there, um, wonderful hymn by Wesley, and can it be, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So that's the hope with all of these doctrines, that it drives us to a greater worship and devotion of the Lord who has done such marvelous things. So we have a little bit of time. Um, I'm certainly uh, may go back now and talk about talk more about um, sanctification and and just because I didn't know how much time I would have for that yet. I wanted to make sure I got through these. But uh, with Tyson in here, I want to talk about next week a little bit and see what kind of topics or questions are you guys thinking that we could um, maybe interact with or have more discussion with. So you can you can go. You can look, you know, just think about your notes. You can go all the way back to the beginning um, or even, so I'm try, we're trying not to get ahead of the next class. So the next class would, would be talking about the church and end times. So probably prefer to wait until, you know, you take that. But you can certainly go, some of you have had the first um, theology class in here talking about God and the Bible and uh, creation. Um, so, I mean, you can tie back to any of those things as well, but just love to hear your thoughts or questions that you would um, maybe like to have a little more dialogue with. statement about earlier um, you know some people wrestle with their entire lifetime have I done enough um, and I think some of these topics we talked about I think the conflict or confusion comes in because um, as people we have a really tough time understanding that our uh, viewpoint isn't how everything truly is and so when we look at it from salvation from our perspective and we know who we are we wonder, did I do enough? And the, the problem is, again, you know, we're looking at it from our viewpoint, but from um, God's viewpoint, where he has provided a way that is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of our, um, I won't say goal, or, but we, we, have to, we have to 
grow towards understanding the sufficiency of uh, of God, and you know, humble ourselves to understand that we can't. Um, uh, we're not a part of making that happen. We're, our our whole role is just to to accept and understand that sufficiency. And so I, I think, as we've talked about some of these, um, typically, uh, I don't know, maybe not controversial, but differing theological views. I, I do think they tend to um, ground themselves and just you know are uh, putting us back at the center of of understanding and not looking at God mm-hmm. and how. You know, how he designed salvation to work. Mm-hmm. So that might be kind of interesting to dig into some of these um, theological differences and show how um, some of the misconceptions are really just because of our, you know, reliance on self, even though it may be really well hidden in there. Okay. Yeah. That's a good, good, okay. So some of the, yeah, okay. Let's put that. Okay. Any other um, topics or questions that you'd like to see more interaction or teaching or engagement with? Or that you were just like, yeah, I just still don't, still don't quite get that one yet. plan to talk about the role of fear of God in sanctification? Uh, Let's see if that's, that may be, if not, we can certainly put that in there. I don't know how much I had in that. We can, we can put that in there. Okay, so the thing is that, like, if you think of anything um, throughout the week, just send one of us an email and just be like, hey, here's a question or whatever the case is. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll kind of think about this. I may show some video clips, too, um, just with some different uh, teaching, teaching things. So we'll kind of think about how we want to do that for next time. Okay, so in our remainder of time here, uh, I'd like to jump back to sanctification and talking about the practical application of that. The practical application of that. So sanctification, if you remember, there's that positional aspect of it where we're set apart by God for use in His work. And then there's the progressive aspect of it where He's changing us degree by degree into Christ-likeness. And so we've talked about those things, but like practically, what does it look like? Because we've talked about sanctification and again, I don't, it's, it's hard sometimes to come up with the right words, but we'll just, for lack of a better one, use the word cooperation, because there is a sense in which we're working in it. Like we are really doing things in it. It's not just all let go and it's not just let go and let God. It's, it's like we're working in it, but God is working the work in us. 
So let's talk about like practically what that looks like for us to engage in that. Um, so scripture uses a lot of analogies to sanctification, like running a race, Hebrews 12.1, or fighting a war, Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. So there's a lot of like action, you know, activity described with that. So we have been called to cultivate holiness. So you think about the farmers and come spring, they're going to be working the field. They're going to be tilling them up and planting. Um, so they know that they can't just say, well, God, you're in, you're in control of everything. So if I'm going to get a bumper crop next year, Lord, this is, oh, this is all you, right? They know that there's an aspect of that where they have to go out there and till the land and put the seed down and then trust God. So there's things that they have to participate in, but, but they still trust God. So we as Christians are called to cultivate or to, in a sense, develop, grow that in our own life with the efforts of a farmer whose future prosperity depends on the crops that he grows. So just imagine Farmer Joe. So Farmer Joe is like, he's going to take the let, God, let go and let God approach. He's going to say, well, I know I should get a tractor and a, a planter and, and the seeds, and I know I should go out there and till the land and everything, but, you know, I think it's just better to let go and let God. So I, I think I'll do that. You know, if the neighbor's seed blows up, if God wills, the neighbor's seed will blow over into my field, which kind of be hard, right? Wash over in my field, maybe. <laughs> or, or maybe God will send a, a tornado to till the land up. You know, whatever the case is, we, we'd just be like, that guy's not going to have, he's going to have weeds out there, right? <laughs> We're not stupid. Um, so, but yeah, because it's kind of funny though, when we jump back to sanctification, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, I, I can't really do anything. You know, that's legalism. That's, that's, you, you're using words like work. Like, I don't want to hear that. You know, it's, we don't have the same, um, it, it's funny how it works differently, but that's not the way it should be. So Paul, for example, says, Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And he's, he's talking this in Galatians 6, uh, verses 7 to 9. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not be weary in doing well, for in due season we will reap if we do not faint. So there's a, a clear call in Galatians 6 to, to go and sow to sow of the Spirit, and, and don't be weary in doing well. And God in the right season is going gonna, is gonna to bless that. So we want to have the attitude then of we're called to cultivate holiness in our life. It's not going to come apart from our, um, our work in it, even though all the credit goes to God. And so it's a whole task. We call this holistic task. So it it demands the, our whole life, our whole heart. So holiness of heart has to be cultivated in every sphere of life, like in our time with God, in our time in the home, in, a, in the competitiveness of our workplace, in the pleasures of friendships, in relationship with our neighbors, um, all of that, as well as the public worship on the Lord's Day. So everything, Paul tells us, is to be sanctified or to made holy. So Horatius Boner, he says this, he says, Holiness extends to every part of our persons, 
fills up our being, spreads over our life, influences everything we are, do, think, speak, plan, small and great, outward or inward, negative or positive, our loving or hating, our sorrowing or rejoicing, our recreations, our business, our friendships, our relationships, our silence, our speech, our reading, our writing, our going in or going out, our whole main, our whole man in every movement of spirit, soul, and body. So it's this idea that every single part about us is we're called to cultivate holiness. So we don't have these segments of like, well, this is my church mentality. This is my Sunday. I'm a Sunday Christian. And then the other six days I get to live, you know, how I want. That's, that's not, not uh, what we're talking about here. It's, the, it's, the, it's a daily task. Calvin says, The whole life of Christians ought to be a sort of practice of godliness, for we have been called to sanctification. So sanctification, again, involves the whole person. And it's an impossible task apart from Christ. So any of you read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7? Anyone familiar with that? And anybody with a sensitive conscience has really felt the weight of the Lord's commands. Think about that. Even an angry word or a lustful thought is a sin that's worthy of the fires of hell. It's not enough to love our children, our spouses, or friends, but we have to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. As the Lord told Moses and the people, the Israelites, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Even Jesus says, therefore be perfect, as even as your Father in heaven, which is perfect, is perfect. So that's, that's a hard thing to, to a hard weight, right? And the trouble with that is if you try to do it yourself by your own efforts, you just can't do it. It's just impossible. So we can't make any progress in holiness until we're joined with Christ by faith. So that's why we continue to talk about all of these elements here. Because um, you, can't, you can't, and why we waited you know, toward the end to talk about sanctification. Because it's not possible apart from Christ. <coughs> J.C. Ryle says, Would you be holy? Would you become a new creature? Then you must begin with Christ. So if you're not in Christ, you don't seek to be holy before coming to Him, but you come to Him how you are, because Christ is the source of holiness for sinners. So that's where it starts. It starts with coming to Christ as we are, not trying to clean our lives up first and then coming to Him, but coming as we are and knowing that through His work, He will uh, begin to make us holy and continue to make us holy. So it would be a big mistake then to look to Christ for our justification, meaning that legal declaration, but then move to pursue holiness by human willpower and wisdom. So sanctification is still by Christ, just as justification is by Christ. So we're still um, depending on Christ for this work of sanctification. And so I want to talk about some ways in which we do that. We had a... Oh, never mind, I'll, I'll ignore that thought. But it was a, an Advent um, devotional that we're looking at with my kids, and one of the first ones was on the offices of Christ. And we had talked about that last class, not last class, like the other class before this one, where we talked in the work of Christ, where we talked about Christ and his offices. Does anybody remember the offices, the threefold offices of Christ? What are those? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. So a lot of, you know, just a lot of folks haven't necessarily heard that before, and they're like, what? Offices of Christ? You know, what, what's that mean? But in our sanctification, we likewise look to these offices of Christ. For example, we look to Christ as the prophet to make known unto us God and His will. So God has spoken to us by His Son. We see that in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. So if we want to know God, if we want to know His purposes, then we have to depend on Jesus in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the light of the world. He's a healer of the blind. Therefore, our prayer should be, Open my eyes that I can behold wondrous things out of your law. Uh, Psalm 119.18 So we're looking to Christ as prophet to make known to us God and His will. We're looking to, or we're depending on Christ as priest uh, to continue to intercede for us. So Jesus has, once for all, has um, laid down His life to make purification for our sins. He's seated on the right hand of God. So Christ's uh, priestly work allows us and enables us to continually draw near to God, to receive more grace, to be more holy. And then in the battle of sanctification, we have a need to draw on the power and victory of Christ as king. So one of the offices of, of Jesus is, his, is that he's king. He has uh, brought many sons to glory. He has conquered death. He's overcome the devil. So to share in Christ's victory, we depend on his son. So we're looking to him uh, as king. So the threefold offices of Christ are uh, very important in, in our sanctification. But then again, thinking about, okay, what's this look like for me practically, Josh? Can you help me with that? Sure. So another part of this is count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Can anybody, does anybody understand what I mean with that one? Want to unpack that a little bit? What's that mean? <coughs> what's that mean? to count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Uh, if you want to look at Romans 6 in particular, um, in verses 1 to 14, uh, verse 11, you'll see that right there. So what's that mean? To count yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You sure will. You go to heaven and you will see the Lord. That's right. What's, I mean, what's Paul saying when he's telling the Romans to, to do that? I think it follows from verse 6, where he talks about um, no longer being a slave to sin, our worldly passions. Um, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about there. You know, we frame everything in our own. You know, we, we frame what we think is good, and, and sometimes it's a, a bad Xerox of what's in Scripture, you know, mm -hmm. being kind to people's good, and so that then becomes, mm -hmm. anytime we're kind, all of a sudden it just became a, a great thing, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't a bad thing, but it's not always necessarily, you know, we tend to pat ourselves on the back, gosh, I'm a kind person. <laughs> um, and so I think when we truly um, understand 
um, you know, the, again, the sufficiency of, of Christ and of God, mm -hmm. uh, then we do recognize that, you know, what we find to be good isn't necessarily mm -hmm. uh, good, um, and that we need to look at good in terms of what God finds to be good. Yeah, mm -hmm. good. So there's, there's this accounting that goes on in our minds. We are, it's a sacred accounting, you could say, is, is we're considering ourselves dead to sin, and we now are alive to God in Christ. So in our minds, we're thinking, that's not me anymore. That's, that's my old nature. I'm dead to that. I've been set free from that. So that's not who I used to be. So I know I want to speak a harsh word about that person, but you know what? I'm dead to that sin. I'm not under the power of it anymore. I don't have to respond like that. I want to lash out in anger, but I don't have to do that anymore. I'm dead to that. That was, that was my old self. I'm new now. So it's this constant battle in our minds of reminding ourselves that we're not who we used to be. So that's the deadness to sin and then um, alive, being alive to God. So I can obey. I can be different now in this response well, because Jesus has made me alive. He set me free from the, from the power of sin here. I can speak kindly to them even though they've spoken harshly to me. I can um, cover the sin in love. I can uh, be patient in this situation. So in our mind, it doesn't replace the work of obedience because Paul goes on to say, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it. Yield yourself unto God. Um, so, I mean, he's, he's, talking, he's talking about an active fight to do what's right. There's, that's still going on. But there is a battle, even in our minds, though, of reminding ourselves that we're not who we used to be. We're now alive to the Lord. So it's this mindset of faith that then propels us into action with the hard work of putting sin to death and doing those acts of righteousness because we know that the victory is won in Christ. So maybe to use another analogy, it's like if you're coming into something already defeated, like say at work, you know, your boss has given you this big task, task to do and you're like already coming in defeated. Like, I can't do that. It's too much. It's like, and you're just the way you do it and try to go through the motions, it's going to be very difficult for you to be very successful at that, right? But if in your mind, even though that if the task still is very big, in your mind, though, if, if you have the mentality of like, this is possible, I've been given the resources and, and the help to be able to do this, yes, it will be hard, but it's very possible for me to do this and do it very well. Sure, the work will still be difficult, but just the thinking in your mind will make a huge difference in the way you approach everything. And the same is true with our Christian life. And then finally, um, warfare against temptation and indwelling sin. So we don't want to forget that we're in a war. Uh, we have a, there's a, a battle between the spirits and, the, in, and our indwelling sin. And then there's an enemy outside of us. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in the high places. So our spiritual enemies are powerful, they're numerous, they're invisible, they're evil, and they're personally attacking us. So if we're going to win, we have to fight. 
We strive, we fight the good fight of faith, we lay hold of eternal life. So the remnant of our sinful flesh is going to fight against every good motion of the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, so the remnants of your sinful flesh that are still in you are constantly fighting against the Spirit who is at work within you. And if we tolerate sin, it will not tolerate holiness in our life. Sin and holiness do not tolerate each other. So if you're like, okay, in this, in this area of my mind, I'm going to allow for this particular sin, you've got to know that it will not stay there. You can't keep it caged up. It's going to permeate everything else. It will. And you're just deceiving yourself if you think that it won't. So there has to be this striving against every bit of sin. Every bit of sin in its essence is hatred for God, Romans 8, 7. Just as every drop of poison is poison and every spark of fire is fire, therefore sin cannot be reconciled to God but must be abolished and destroyed, as John Owen said. So we want to live in present sense, uh, present tense, total commitment to God. We don't want to fall prey to the one more time syndrome. Oh, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but just one more time. Then, then I won't do it anymore. Don't do that. We don't want to do that. Postponed obedience is disobedience. Tomorrow's holiness is impurity now. Today's, tomorrow's faith is unbelief today. So our aim is not to sin at all. We're asking for divine strength to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. And we don't want to show mercy to our sin, but kill it by the Spirit. Okay, so we've ended uh, sanctification on that note to you know practical action, to get in the game and by God's power to fight it. So looking forward to next week. Like I said, if you have any questions or topics that you'd like to see us uh, do a little bit more or maybe show a video or two on, um, contact myself or Tyson. So thank you, everybody. Take care and uh, see you next week. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Here for me. Thank you. Yeah. I'd like to introduce you to Tyson if that's okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. He's our uh, worship pastor. Oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. I did um, what we discussed yesterday. I did okay. Uh -huh. front. Yeah. How'd that go? Uh, she's leaving again at five. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm going to confront again. Yeah. So, like, you know, if, if you want your space, that's fine. But mm -hmm. just know that if you do go and sleep in his bed, that's not okay. Yeah. Good. 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 Yeah. That's, that's hard. I told her that, like, because we talked about her family and everything, and I was like, mm -hmm. you're confusing our disappointment and hurt for lack of love. Yeah. It's like, there has never been a lack of love. Your family loves mm -hmm. you. I love you. Mm -hmm. We just don't approve and are hurt by the choices you're making. Mm -hmm. But we all love you. Mm -hmm. oh.